think the serve is the most important shot in the game, and he's got that in spades. He returns very well. He's got such a good tennis brain, and most of all, he is fearless. And I think to be a great player, you've got to have that fearlessness under pressure. And he showed us that on numerous occasions. Now, for me, it's just about Nick harnessing that. And I think he is learning to do that very quickly. He's winning a lot of matches in a short space of time. And I think that builds your confidence. And it gives you the ability to get across the finishing line against these guys in big matches. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. It is Thursday. We are in the business end of the Miami Open. I am back from uh, overseas. You can probably tell dealing with a little cold. Not that we're complaining. We have a great guest this week. It's Robbie Koenig. You know his work from various tennis broadcasts, the World Feed, some Tennis Channel work. And you also probably know that he was a player of, uh, of repute predominantly a doubles player in, in the 80s and 90s, one of the all-time great guys, a real tennis insider, one of these guys that enriches the the tennis caravan. We talk about a whole bunch of things. You will also notice Robbie's accent. There are some accents where you could say, I love you, and it sounds like you're being sent to the principal's office. Um, Philadelphia, for instance. This is the opposite. You'll notice Robbie's South African accent, which... Uh, you can say anything he wants, and, and you, you feel like it's endearing. Um, we had a good conversation. Talked about a lot of things. Federer, Djokovic, Kyrgios, Serena, some women's tennis, South African tennis. Uh, a good listen. Thanks to the guest. Let's get right to it. It is Robbie Koenig. We've had, uh, we've had multiple requests for you, so I'm glad, uh, glad we got you on here. Uh, thanks, Shauna. <laughs> let's uh, let's jump right in. It is the problem with doing these during big events is that uh, we have to timestamp these. So you you and I are talking uh, New York time. It's about noon on Thursday. So if we talk yes. Miami, uh, some of these results will probably be stale. But anyway, what? Um, so someone asked me what are the uh, three biggest stories in men's tennis so far this year, and uh, I'll tell you later how I answered. But how how do you answer that one? Wow, um, that's a good question. Well, for me, obviously Federer right. is, is headlining everything, John. Um, secondly, it'll be how is Nick Kyrgios going to progress or regress this year? I think for me, he is probably one of the most gifted players I've, I've seen in a long time since the likes of Federer. And I think... The third question probably involves two players. What does 2017 hold for Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray? I think, will Murray be able to stay on top of the rankings? And what kind of bounce-back ability are we going to see from Novak Djokovic? So those would be my three headline acts. I I will show this to my producer, uh, Jamie, as proof. I had one Roger Federer, two Novak Djokovic, and three Nick Kyrgios. So uh, either these are really obvious or you and I are thinking <laughs> on the same lines. But, um, all right, let's, let's dig into each of those. What, um, I mean, you, you have a certain perspective as a broadcaster but also a former player. What, what are you seeing in Roger Federer who, uh, you know, is, is, is 10 years, you, you and I are the same age. I mean, this, this guy isn't a whole lot younger than we are. What, what, uh, what do you make of this? Um, I think it's, I think we're so blessed, first of all, to see this going on. The biggest thing that is in Roger's favor that I've never seen with a player at the very top of the game is how much he loves the sport, number one, and how much he loves traveling. 
Right. It is so unusual in our sports to see a player who actually enjoys going to cities and exploring them and getting out there. So I think those are two very important sidelines that help him uh, do well in his sport. Um, you know, I think as well that because of the efficiency in which he's always played the game, both in stroke production, his mechanics, and the way he moves, it's enabled him to win so many matches so easily, John. And I think that's really been instrumental in this longevity that we've seen from Roger now. Um, and the fact, you know, that he's got this exuberance, it's just so unique. There's so many unique characteristics that we see with him that enable him to play so well at the age of 35. I, th- I think that's a really good point about the the travel and not being jaded. I, you know, I mean, let's let's be honest. Obviously, some of that is about means that there are, you know, m- many players cannot afford to bring their whole family with them on the road and, yes, you know, ha- have some of the amenities that he does. But I, I think that's a really good point that I haven't heard made much that he doesn't have this road weariness that you see yeah. in in other players, especially the ones with with wives and kids back home, and and you know, and, and husbands too, for that matter. 100%. And, you know, it always it always reminds me, John, of I remember like hearing towards the end of Pete's career, Pete Sampras, how much, you know, he didn't enjoy the traveling. And, you know, he's I think he's a good example to to match up against because Pete had the means as well. Um, Andre, I always got the feeling as well when I'm thinking of American players, there was always this a stigma attached to them that they never liked to go on the road and they never liked to go out of the States. And it was always a bit of a grind for them. But I've never felt that with Roger. I don't know if it's a European thing, um, but I always keep that thought in the back of my mind when I compare his kind of travel schedule and his means versus some of the other the greats uh, that have played the game because travel is often the one thing that ends up cutting the guy's career. It's almost the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, in other sports, you have you have home games and, and the road trips, you you you're weary, but you're with your teammates, and then you know that you go back to your home locker in your own bed. You know, this yes. this is nine, ten months of uh, sleep sleeping on different mattresses. Yeah, hundred percent right. And as you as you say in team sports, you know, fifty percent of the games are generally at home, and when you're traveling, it's either within Europe or it's within the states. You know, you're often not you're not a, not a global traveler for a lot of team sports. So, you know, tennis, without a doubt, for me, is one of the toughest sports to make it. Also, because of the financial demands early on in the career, there's no guarantees through um, big contracts that you sign with the team. You're on your own generally for for a couple of years. And then couple that with the travel, it's it's very difficult. You, Robbie Koenig or Roger Federer, do you play the clay season, including the French Open, or do you shut it down and try to peak for Wimbledon? I try to shut it down and peak for Wimbledon. Really? Um, really? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, but only Roger knows how he feels playing on clay. Um, I look at it as a perspective, and I've had this conversation with a couple of people, um, whereby let's say you grew up in America where clay perhaps wasn't your best opportunity to do well. Look at someone like Sampras sure, again. Sure. I've often had this discussion with Kevin Curran as well, and he did used to miss the clay court season to focus solely on the grass because I think uh, – his chances of winning the French are always going to be the toughest for Roger. I always think Wimbledon through US Open, such an important time. So why wouldn't you be at your optimum level? Try and do whatever you can to win both at Wimbledon and in the US Open because 
you know, if you had told him he could win three out of the four majors in a season, he would have bitten your arm off at the start of the season. So that right. would just be my roll of the dice as far as yes. that question is concerned. I could be way off the mark. He might think it's a very important preparation for uh, for grass, but I'd rather play an extra grass court uh, tournament, start maybe a week earlier, right, and right. forget about the clay court the, season. The scuttlebutt I've heard is that uh, a lot of it is just, how's my back going to feel, and what am I going to do when it's 51 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's a cold day, and my back seizes up, do I really want to jeopardize Wimbledon, but I, I think the flip side of that is, you've won the previous Grand Slam. Yeah, you've you're coming off Indian Wells. You had a tremendous ten days in the desert. You've always played well on clay. You know, you're you're not Nadal on clay, but you can play on this thing. And given the state, I mean, he he now is in Nadal's head, which I think is one of the more remarkable sort of uh, plot twists that I've seen in this sport. He yes. now seems to have a mental edge on Nadal, which which we never would have said eighteen months ago. Who knows where Djokovic is? We can talk about him in a moment. You're in Paris. It's only two hours from home. I, I can't imagine a guy winning the previous major at age 35 and taking off the subsequent one. And that's a good argument. I can't argue against it. I think you make a, a very good point. My only concern is what happens if it's a cold morning in Monte yeah, Carlo exactly, or late, exactly. late cold evening in Madrid and you do something stupid? Right. Right. And we know the movement is very different. It takes always a couple of, uh, you know, a good couple of days to get used to the movement on clay, and it's a lot more physical. And I would just think, in my mind, it's not worth it. I'd rather give Wimby and uh, the U.S. Open everything I've got. Very but, interesting. No, I think your point is as valid as mine. Uh, well, you know, we'll, one one man makes a decision. We'll see. We'll see what he does. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk a little curious. And uh, I'm I'm with you that um, it's I, to me he's a, he's a hard guy to cover because he's done some things that have just been I, I think borderline disgraceful. And then you see him play, and I, not just the tennis. I, mean, I wrote about it a little bit this week. I think he's a pretty cool guy. I mean, I've seen a lot of acts of non choreographed coolness out of him, and. You know, yet there are other moments when you you can't defend what he's doing. But I I think the talent is undeniable. Is this uh, is is it too crazy to start talking about future number one here? No, definitely not. Not when uh, not when you're beating the likes of three of the greatest players ever to play the game at the first time of asking. We know how intimidating it is to play them, let alone beat them. So for me, that's probably one of the one of the greatest achievements. Uh, I've seen in a while from a young player um, being able to beat the, the likes of Federer, Djokovic and Nadal. So that's of vital importance. He's got the weapons. Uh, no question about that. I think the serve is the most important shot in the game and he's got that in spades. He returns very well. He's got such a good tennis brain and most of all, he is fearless. And I think to be a great player, you've got to have that fearlessness under pressure. And he showed us that on numerous occasions. Now, for me, it's just about Nick harnessing that. And I think he is learning to do that very quickly. He's winning a lot of matches in a short space of time. And I think that builds your confidence. And it gives you the ability to get across the finishing line against these guys in big matches. So is he going to be number one at the end of this year? No. End of next year? I wouldn't bet my house on it. Right. But I'll tell you what, by... End of 2018, mid-2019, I think he's in with a shot. Which which right now still puts him squarely, you know, that's that's barely middle age. If you uh, if we're working on the assumption guys are playing into their 
early to mid thirties now. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I mean, have you dealt with him much personally? Um, you know, I get to know the guys a lot better when we when we're involved in the IPTL at the end of the year because you travel together. It's almost right. like a traveling circus. So, you know, and I've got to see him also away from the tennis court a little bit. And um, my good friend who coached Ayla Tomoljanovic, John Lafney de Yaga, um, gave me some great insight as well into their relationship and what Nick is, uh, you know, like away from the court. And he was part of Nick's team. And the guy is, is such a good guy. Um, good, good, he is like guy, uh, Patty right? in his girlfriend's hands, and right. I think that's good. <laughs> um, she's a, a fantastic influence on him, and I think probably part of the reason why he's um, feeling pretty upbeat about his game at the moment is she's back on the road, so he's seeing a bit more of his best friend and his girlfriend. You know, And I think all those small comforts play an important role in somebody like Nick's life, just given where he is. That's the Im- impression I get, John. I also think that uh, you know he's sort of the, the bad boy of tennis, and you cover other sports, um, you know the way the way I do, and you see some really yep. rotten thing. I mean, you you see some you see felonies, right? I mean, you you see drugs and dogfighting and Baylor football. I mean, you see horrible things, and people say, "Oh, he's the bad boy of tennis." People say to me, "Well, what has he done?" And you sort of say, "Well, there was this time when he won a tournament, and then the next week he tanked a match." And there was this time that he overslept practice because he'd stayed up late watching the Boston Celtics play. And ev- even the episode with Stan, which was pr- pretty outrageous, in the grand scheme of athletes' misbehavior, what it, what it takes to be a bad boy in the NFL, you know, yes. trash-talking an opponent's girlfriend uh, probably doesn't rank so high. Um, <laughs> but uh, You've hit, you, you hit the nail on the head, haven't you? Um, everything in life is relative. So relative to other sports, as you suggest, the stuff he's done is is so minor. Relative to our sport, it's a big deal. So when you look at it in a in a global perspective, um, you know this is a young kid. He's got plenty of spunk, and he's growing up under you know the microscope of of the tennis world. And you know everybody deals with pressure differently. Some guys go into their shell. And when people have a go at them, they don't say anything. They're kind of hard away. Whereas with with um, with Nick, you have a go with him, at him, and his way of responding is to go right back at you. And <laughs> I like it. You know, for such a long time, we always complain we don't have enough characters in our sport. Everybody reacts the same way, and I think it's healthy uh, to have characters in sport. Of course, as you suggested, people say and do stuff that at times is not great if kids are watching television. But you can't have everything uh, to be perfect in sport. We both know that, John. He also he went after Piers Morgan, who's one of the great assholes of our time on Twitter. So uh, he, <laughs> he won me over with that. What um, real, real, can can he become number one without a coach? He's probably one of the few guys who could, could be could. able to do it. I think he could. Yes, I do. Um, let's talk Djokovic, and I feel like everyone is sort of dancing around this, and I think it's an interesting, it's, it's sort of a journalistic question as well as a sports question of, of how much do we and can we delve into explanations when the athlete sort of, you know, he's, he's alluded to personal issues. I think it was Mary Carrillo, I know, amongst a few people have mentioned spouse issues, but no one's really sort of talked openly about what's going on Take this wherever you want it, but first of all, how much do you think, as a former player, how much of a right and obligation is there to talk about, sort of, to speculate what's going on? And and second of all, 
what do we do here? I mean, here here's a guy where at this time last year he was absolutely dominating the sport. The results aren't there. Clearly, I, I think spiritually sort of something in his soul isn't where it used to be. And yet that may well be private. That may well just be regressing to the mean. Maybe there's an injury he hasn't talked about. I mean, where, where do you take the speculation when you comment mm-hmm. on him? I think I think we always got to be careful as journalists when it is speculation. If, if you don't know the truth, if you're not 100% sure, um, especially when you're dealing with superstars in sport, I think it's very uncool to make statements if you're not 100% sure about them. So that's where, where I stand. And he's openly said, you know, he's got personal issues um, and whether it's, you know, spousal or whatever it might be. We know when I have a fight with my wife or if things aren't great at home, you know, to fix your emotional your emotional state. And that's not great when you're competing at the highest level in any sport, let alone our sport. So if that is indeed the case, I'm sure that's having a knock-on effect to how he's playing and how he's feeling out there. So, you know, that's my, my answer to, to the first question. Is a, is a lovely saying that we all know, happy wife, happy <laughs> life. Yep. What about, so, uh, yeah, if, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Yes. So if that is the case... Um, Maybe maybe we can understand why he's struggling at the moment. But also, uh, the thing that I find so strange, and you and you touched on it there, is how dominant he was. And I don't know if it's an insight into the frailty of sport, where if you just lose that one or two percent right. over the rest of the field, right. it shows you in our sport um, actually how much depth we have, and that the next guy who's knocking on the door. Is, is going to take those keys to the penthouse and kick you out. So, you know, there's that to be looked at as well. Um, and I just wonder sometimes is when you've been winning as much as he does, do you sometimes lose the edge? Is this just become, you know, he's reached the pinnacle. He had never won the French Open, wanted to do that. And now he's got there and it's like, okay, what next? No, exactly. And I, I think it's hard. I mean, I think that, at some level, look, it's, it's if a company is doing well and suddenly the results go off a cliff, it's natural to probe and say, what's going on here? If, if an actor has a string of lousy movies, you say, boy, I don't know what's going on. Are they getting bad advice? I mean, I think it's natural to speculate when results in a public, you know, you're, you're in a performative art yep. and your results are much different than they used to be. I think it's natural for people to wonder what's going on. At the same time, athletes are entitled to explanations and some privacy and some discretion and yet again i just i can't you you sort of look at the conversations we were having not that long ago Mm. and now you see a guy who's struggling to win you know struggling to win matches it's it's really striking to me but um you know i i I also think you what you said is a good point you know you there's only one way you get to the top and there's only one way your results can go at some point and he wins the french open again suddenly He's back to number one, and we're not having this discussion. So it, it doesn't doesn't take much. Um, how much uh, how much women's tennis do you follow? Concern yourself with? Well, given that uh, the majority of my contracts are, are with the men's right, game, right. I would say um, I probably have about a a seventy thirty split. I probably watch seventy percent of the time men's tennis, thirty percent of the times women's tennis. But of course, I, flo- I follow the results. Um, but I don't have that in-depth knowledge. Like when you're commentating on a match, you know break points, set points, what happened on those set points, and you have that intricate knowledge because I don't commentate on nearly as many women's matches. 
I don't have that uh, intricate uh, knowledge of patterns of play and strengths and weaknesses of all the all, all the women like I do of the men, John. How do you uh, how do you go about commentating on on a women's match versus a men's match? Is it just you know here here it is? There's one player on each side of the net, and uh, let's let's see where this goes. Or is there a different strategy, a different preparation, different goals during the broadcast? No, it's exactly the same preparation. It's probably more preparation for me because I. I haven't watched the players play as much, so it's, it's a lot more going on YouTube, watching the matches. And for me, it's a lot about what happens on the big points. I like to do a lot of research on the big points and matches, break points, uh, set points, and all that, and see the patterns of play that the players like. But of course, I do keep an eye on them, so I do know what's happening at the top of the game, especially uh, who's doing what. Um, but no, preparation is probably more for the women's matches. Um, I would say there's probably a little less variety in their game style versus the men. So um, the patterns of play are quite similar from one player to the other, uh, except when you get somebody like a Radvanska, who I'm a big fan of. I love commentating on her matches because of what she brings to the court. Or you know somebody like Simone Halep, who's a little smaller in stature and is trying to figure things out her own way. But um, you know, for the most part, and I know you've done a lot of tennis, uh, it's pretty much... Preparation is pretty much the same. I'll uh, wait. I want. I want to. Let, let's keep talking about style because I'll, I'll push back a tiny bit because uh, yeah. t- tell me if you agree or disagree with this. That in in terms of stylistically, there probably is less variety in women's tennis. Though yeah. though I would argue if you look at the range of physique and you look at the range of ages, I mean I, we can sort of go through and Nicolescu and Radwanska. You can pick pick a few players that play a little differently, but I I think women's tennis gets a bad rap for being homogenous. I mean, I think just, just by body range of the players, there's variety. But I also would say the, the emotional variety, and some of that is innate, and some of that is cultural, and some of that is, you know, you have married players with, with kids and spouses, and some of this is you have much younger players. I, I think there's real variety in the women's game that I think gets overlooked as people just see, like, oh, she's a big forehand baseliner, and they all hit their serve to the same place. I, I would... I would contend there's a, a lot more variety in the women's game than, than it's given credit for. Okay, so just so I understand you, it's a good discussion to have. Variety in the type of tennis they play? or in- Yeah, exactly. No, I think that that's that, – exactly. I mean, I, th- I think people limit variety talk to uh, the type of tennis that goes on while the ball's in play. And sure, maybe w- women have less of it than men. But if you look overall variety as a sports fan – I mean, I, I love women's tennis in part because – the personalities come out on the court more, and there's certain players yep. that you know rise to the occasions, and there's certain players you know. I mean, Carolyn Garcia. I can pick out. I mean, we can come up with names. There are players yep. I want to play if my life is depending on who's going to win the break point, and there are players I want to run screaming from if my life depends on who wins the break point. To me, that all adds to the experience of of being a fan and an observer. A very good point that agree you or make. Disagree. Um, now, if if I'm trying to counter that argument, I will say that. You know, very few women are able to dominate with their serve. So the vast majority of the rallies get determined by baseline points between, you know, five and ten shots. So if I am trying to put it all in one jar and say that's why it's one-dimensional, that would probably be, you know, my argument. But I must say um, I'm a big fan of Madison Keys. I love the way that she plays the game. And somebody else who's been on my radar for a long time is uh, Svitolina. Big fan of hers. And actually, Jana Conta's a fantastic story. So I think in the last 
12 months, there's definitely been a lot of storylines within women's tennis. It just seems to me there's been a lot more lately than there has perhaps prior to that time. Now, again, you're probably better informed than I am with um, the intricacies of what's going on there. But there's a lot of great stories with people coming back from injury. People have been out there a long time doing well. Somebody like uh, Caroline Wozniacki was struggling for her for so long. Right. Now she's back up competing at the top. So storylines, yes, there's a lot of those. As far as game styles are concerned, um, we probably, if I'm playing devil's advocate, I would disagree with you that there's a lot of different styles out there. It's a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, and it's it's baseline tennis and see ball, hit ball, and try to win the five to eight stroke rally. Yeah, I know. I, I don't think you and I are far apart on that. No, um, I agree. Yep. Let me. I mean, you know, as as long as you and I have known each other, I don't. I don't know. What t- I mean, you and I have mutual friends, and again, we're contemporaries. What? What? How'd you get into this? Like, what's your what's your backstory? What'd your folks do? Um, my dad had his own uh, furniture shop, but my uncle, my dad's uh, youngest brother, he played Davis Cup for South Africa. He played at the same time as uh, Eric Sturgis, and who else would you know from South Africa? Probably a little older than Ray Moore. Okay. Um, of course, uh, who was the uh, the main character in uh, Handful of Summers? Gordon Forbes. Gordon Forbes, oh, no, Gordon yeah, Forbes. yeah, great book. Yeah, um, same time as Gordon Forbes. But who was the, the naughty guy in Handful of Summers? I'm having a brain cramp here. He just passed away. Through uh, um, McMillan? No, I know Fru- what you mean. Um, I can't believe I'm doing You and I are uh, we're too young to have this. A Big Boy is the other book that he wrote. He, he wrote his own book called Big Boy. Um, the name will come back to me. Keep so he going. played around the, those times. And he played at Wimbledon. He played at the French Open. So my uncle, uh, Guyton Koenig, um, was always involved in tennis. So tennis was always part of our family. I used to, My dad used to play at the local club. But um, my brother grew up at the same time as Kevin Curran, almost exactly the same age. And um, he used to play with me a lot. Very good player. When Kevin went to UT, he wanted my brother to come along and my parents said, no, you have to get a, a proper job and get a proper education. And he went on to study law. And, of course, Kevin went on to do great things in the sport. But my brother wasn't far away in, in ability to somebody like Kevin Curran. So very much in the family. And then that was the tennis side of things, John. And as far as the commentary, um, that really came about in 2006 when I was coaching uh, a little bit. And I bumped into Jason Goodall, who um, who does a bit of commentary now for ESPN and some work with me. And um, he had just started with the world feed and we were having a discussion and he said, you know, is commentary something that you'd like to get into? Because the one guy that works with me is retiring at the end of the year. And that one guy was the legendary John Barrett. Okay, sure. He was just turning 80. And at the end of 2006, John was about to retire. And back then, of course, the world feed, uh, for people who don't know, is basically the host broadcaster who sells the television rights to everybody else. The World Feed is a very basic broadcast, especially 10 years ago. And when John was retiring, I kind of uh, put my hand up, did a couple of trial matches when I was already on site because I was already on site in a coaching capacity. And um, I did a couple of matches for the World Feed production. And um, basically, thanks to Jason, I, I got my foot in the door there. And I've been commentating for the last ten years. And you enjoy it. I mean, this is this is your new this is full time work. You treat this yep. a job the way you used to treat playing tennis. Yep. I mean, I hope my bosses don't hear this, but it's not work for me. I absolutely love it. I don't think I've worked a day in my life, John, from my playing days to my commentary days. And you know, right now we're watching 
some of the greatest players ever to play our sport. Three guys who between them have almost every single record in our sport. You've got somebody like Andy Murray, who's who's the fourth guy, who's also, you know, producing records uh, for Great Britain that have have never been broken in 70, 80, 100 years. And guys like me and you are at the front end with the best seats in the house commentating on these matches. Um, it's, you know, you almost got to pinch yourself some of these days when I'm watching Federer play the finals of the Australian Open or playing a match like he did against Nadal at Indian Wells. Uh, I'm very blessed, and uh, I certainly don't take my job for granted, and I love every minute of it, John. How can you not? That's nice to hear you say. And uh, no, you're you're absolutely right. It's uh, you you sometimes you look around and you say there, you know, whatever, whatever it was on other twenty thousand people have basically flown in paid money to do what uh, you and I have the good fortune of being paid to do. Um, exactly. So let let me ask you about your career. I'm looking at your I'm looking at your bio, and it says that. Uh, you have singles career wins over the likes of Tim Henman, Pat Rafter, and Kafelnikov. How do you yeah. uh, how do you reflect on your? I mean, you you're one of these guys. I, I think broadcasters sometimes they are very clear about letting you know that they played, and they're sometimes have a hard time uh, sort of sublimating their own careers. You're the opposite. Uh, I think people sometimes don't even know that you were a player of of such such high regard. How do you look back on your career, and how does that figure into your broadcasting? Oh, no. Uh, I look back on it very fondly. Um, and and I remember those guys growing up. And it's funny, out of those three guys that you mentioned there, uh, if you had told me Rafter was going to win any tour event, I would have been surprised, let alone two U.S. Opens. Um, he's a perfect example of a player who developed late and understood his strengths and weaknesses. Kafalnikov was a guy who hit the ball so hard uh, but couldn't keep three or four shots in in a row. But obviously, once he learned to harness that power, he was a different player. But the guy that impressed me the most when we were younger was Tim Henman. I thought for really? sure this guy was going to win majors, be um, you know maybe a world number one. But it just goes to show, John, you can you can never say what's going to happen. Um, I think I never. The big thing for me was I never really grew as a servant volleyer. I needed to be probably six one or six two to have a decent shot, and so I never had I never had the tools to be effective against the very best players week in and week out. So that was always going to be my challenge. But I think I've always seen the game well. I was just never able to execute it as well as I, I saw it. And I think that's what's helped me get into broadcasting. I was always had a good analytical mind as a player, could suss out players' strengths and weaknesses, um, understand patterns of play. And I could pick up on that stuff quickly. But as a player, to get to the, the highest level of the game in singles especially, uh, just didn't have the tools. And that's why doubles was a very good uh, transition for me. I was a seven volleyer anyway. And the fact that you only had to cover half of the court, you could get away with some of the weaknesses that I had. We should put, you know, you won, won five titles and made, uh, made, made, a living, made a living doing this. Let me, we're running low on time. Here, I'm going to go, you got one sentence to answer these. This is like quasi speed round. Wow, okay. Uh, you, you mentioned... Kevin Curran, among others, Ray Moore, Cliff Drysdale. What, what's the status of tennis in South Africa, briefly? We're, we're probably as um, rock bottom as we've ever been, but we've got a great new CEO in place and Richard Glover, and I'm really optimistic about things moving forward. And uh, John Lafney de Yager as well. I'm, I've got a foundation with him that we do a lot of raising of funds for, for young up-and-coming kids that we're trying to support. So I think we're heading in the right direction now. That is a great run-on sentence. Good answer. Um, 
we talk about Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, even you know Serena. How concerned are you about uh, the inevitable letdown whenever it presents itself? Five years, ten years. How, how inevitable? I mean, how how worried are you about uh, sort of what tennis does after this great era passes? Of course, I'm worried because these are some of the greatest players ever to play the game. So yes, I am worried, but. Uh, life has an amazing way of producing new people to talk about, new characters, and I'm hoping that will just be the case as we move on from the likes of Serena, Roger, Rafa, Venus, whoever else it might be. Roger Federer wins blank more majors. One. Serena? Two. Really? Yes. Finally, t- tell me about uh, tell me about your tennis experiences. Um, probably one of the no, no. no I mean, gr- sorry, the uh, you know the the that you and Goodall do. Tell tell me. Uh, so someone else had told me about this. You you and Goodall do these sort of tennis experiences where you go on events with uh, with fans. Yeah, yeah. We have uh, corporate guys and uh, tennis fans. We host tennis clinics. Uh, we've done a couple in the states um, where. We will do tennis clinics with players during the day, and then we do talks in the evening uh, where people ask us about our commentary, what life is like on tour. Um, uh, We've taken some guests as well to Wimbledon and showing them around there. Of course, Jason's a member there. So that's always an incredible experience for a tennis fan to go and have a look around uh, Wimbledon in the summertime. There's probably no better place to be if you're a tennis fanatic and you love your, your sport um, then, then going to, as far as I'm concerned, the home of tennis at, at SW19. So we've done uh, a fair bit of that. And, you know, I think we, we feed off each other very well. So tennis anecdotes, tennis stories that we share with tennis fans and corporate people as well who enjoy their tennis. And it's been a lot of fun. Where are you off to next? I'll be off to Monte Carlo and then it'll be Rome and Madrid. So it'll be fascinating to see whether Federer is playing there or not, John. On Thursday, tell me who wins Miami. I think Roger Federer is the safe bet, but I feel very edgy this week, and I've got a sneaky feeling Nick Kyrgios might do something outrageous this week. Very interesting. All right, let's let's end it here. We're going to do one of these again. That was great. i got a million more questions that we could talk about, but – that was fun. That was like me and you having lunch at a tournament, only with uh, with audio where other people can eavesdrop. Oh, that's lucky, John. Anytime, man. Uh, we could go on for hours and hours. Um, so anytime. It's always a privilege to be on your show, but thanks for having me. Oh, thanks. All right. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Jay. All right. Thanks, Robbie. Cheers, buddy. See you, buddy. All right. That's this week's tennis podcast from Sports Illustrated and Tennis Channel. That was with Robbie Koning, one of the all-time good guys in tennis. Good conversation. He and I could go on forever. One of those guys who you just enjoy talking shop with when you run into him. Uh, Thanks to Robbie. You can read all about him um, online, including those tennis experiences that he had mentioned. You'll hear him soon come clay court season on various world feeds. We thank him for joining us. Thanks to our producer, as always, Jamie Lasanti. We will have another guest next week. Enjoy the last few days of the Miami Open. Thanks for listening, and we'll do it again next week. Take care.